Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make him known. Amen. So good to be with you all. I haven't been back here in so many years. I was thinking, you know, once UR gets in you, it doesn't get out of you, no matter where God calls you. So it's so fun to be with you all. Uh, I'm from Houston. My family, I live out in Katy, Texas now. I have seven kids. But when I was at City of Refuge, I had no kids. It was just me. So if you're single here at CUR, watch out. You never know what might happen. <laughs> Speaking of which, we're talking about love today. So there you go. Um, so as I was, you know, I know you all have already heard some sermons uh, on 1 Corinthians 13. And so uh, this is coming at the conclusion of a few weeks where you have talked about the theme of love. But maybe, maybe it's just me. But I find... Whenever I come across a familiar topic in a sermon, somewhere in the back of my mind, I go, okay, I've heard this before, and I can check out. And I think love is certainly one of those topics, because not only have you heard it in sermons, it's all over the place in our culture. It's on every radio station, if you still do the radio, or whatever your streaming platform of choice is, Spotify, or what have you. It's every TV show, every movie, love is everywhere in our culture. And so, when we come to a topic like love that's in the scriptures... There's a certain sense where we go, okay, well, you know, I kind of, I'm not the best of people, but I'm, I'm a nice person. I, I try to be loving, so I'll, I'll kind of tune in, but, you know, this is, not, this is one of those areas where I feel like I'm, I'm kind of getting it sort of maybe. Some of you on the other side, you're saying, look, I've read 1 Corinthians 13. There is no way I'm ever doing that in my life. I can try a million times over, and within five minutes of walking out of here today, I will already have failed to be what love is. And so we say, why even pay attention? I'm just going to, I know, this is like the, 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 you know, uh, someone come up to me today and say, hey, why don't you climb Mount Kilimanjaro or whatever? Say, that's a great idea. In abstract, I love the idea of being the guy that climbs that mountain. It ain't going to be me. So we read 1 Corinthians 13, we say, this is great. This is an awesome description of love. I want to be the guy that lives that out, but that's not going to be me. So when we come to 1 Corinthians 13, we talk about love. I find that for myself, it's easy to tune out or to kind of gloss over it when I'm reading it in the Bible. But I'm hoping that today, and I'm hoping that through this series y'all have been through, that y'all have gotten a, a, a sense of the Christian distinction of what love is. Because the love that Paul talks about here is not just a nice poem for weddings. It's not just great for Hallmark cards or for Michael's pillows. It's real stuff. It's the stuff that changes you. And it is the substance of God's spirit at work in the church and and, and making manifest in our lives around us that draw others to Christ. And it is the love of Christ that draws us up in himself. So I'm hoping that today, as, we, as, as I walk with you through the end of this chapter, that you find something here that maybe God reveals to you something about his love that you hadn't thought about before. And that you walk out of here with some tangible change, maybe seeds of it in your life. And to, to that end, let me pray for us as we go into his word. Dear God, we thank you. We, I thank you so much. Because without your word, I am lost. Without your word, I am dead in the water. And God, when it comes to love, I have so many faulty and selfish ideas of love. So many self-serving ideas of love. That before I even act on, even act them out in my behaviors and the way I treat others, even in my own self, my ideas of love are self-serving. And you show us here a picture in 1 Corinthians 13 of a love that is beyond ourselves. Of a love that we can never manufacture out of our own flesh 
of a love that we will never see produce in human culture on its own. It is truly and purely a love that only comes to us by your grace through the Holy Spirit. As we come into your word this morning, Holy Spirit, I invite you into this time. I ask that you would open our hearts to see and perceive and be changed by your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to jump into the text here. We're going to be jumping into verse 8, and we're going to be reading it verses 8 to 13, and I should be up here in a moment. And I'm going to read it. I don't know what your tradition is here. I should have asked. Do you all normally stand or no? It's up to y'all. And if you don't stand, that's fine. That's fine. I, I like feedback when I preach, by the way, so don't be, don't be shy. All right. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Amen. So you could preach a whole sermon on that very first phrase. Love never ends. Amen. Let's go home. It, that alone is, 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 you know, if I can live that out in my life, that reality out, I'm a good step forward than where I was two minutes ago. He starts by saying love never ends. And, of course, some commentators say, well, is this concluding what he had just talked about? He's been talking about love and describing love, and then he says love never ends. Is he kind of tailing off what we all heard last week, or is it sort of setting up the new thing? Either way, maybe it's a bridge. His point is this. And, by, by the way, you're, if you have your own Bible, it might say love never fails. The word there in the Greek is essentially perishes. Love never perishes. Or love is never crushed. Or love is never, love never falls. That's like the most literal definition of it. It means love is never going to fail. It's not just about a temporal idea. I'll get to that in a minute. But it is hinting at something that is the underlying truth of this passage that makes no sense if you don't know what Paul's saying. So Paul is living at the time when Jesus had just raised from the dead. And, and his mind, and in the minds of these early Christians, this wasn't just about you and me believing in Jesus. This was about God doing something new in the world. Jesus' resurrection was not just, wow, that's really awesome. It was God himself declaring that the world that Adam and Eve ushered in of sin and death and destruction and darkness and misery is at an end. Amen? That's what Jesus' resurrection was a declaration of. The New Testament says it's the first fruits, meaning if you're a farmer, which none of us probably are, it's that very first strawberry you get at the early part of the season that you know more is coming. It's that very first corn or that very first whatever. I'm not a farmer, by the way. It's that very first one you get, and you know there's a whole lot more coming. Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits of the new age to come. So what's going to happen is, when Jesus returns, there will be a day of judgment. And every human being will be, every human being, every single human being that has ever lived, will be raised in a new physical body, an imperishable body. And on that day, God will judge every single human being. And those who have professed faith in Christ, who have been saved, 
who have been forgiven of their sins will be ushered into the new heavens and new earth. I'm, if this is old for all of y'all, if y'all have like done heard this a million times, that's fine, I'm sorry. But I want to make sure we're on the same page because this is what Paul's talking about here. And that new heaven to new earth, it is not just us in heaven with, you know, little angel babies and harps. It is us in a new physical glorified body, just like Jesus's, which, by the way, is why John talks about Jesus eating fish after his resurrection. John wants us to see that Jesus and, and Thomas touching him. He wants us to understand that Jesus' resurrection was a physical resurrection. He wasn't just some spirit walking around. He had a physical resurrection. And his resurrection is what all of us will have, a new glorified body. And we will be ushered into the new heavens and the new earth. Those who are apart from Christ will be sent to eternal destruction. So that's all important, which by the way, that has nothing to do with love, does it? I haven't said love in like the last five minutes. But Paul, is ta- he's referencing that here. When he says love never fails, he is talking about when we go into the new heavens and new earth, Love and the fruit of love and the work of love that is redemption and all the redemption is, is, is done out of love, God's love for us. It produces love in us for God. It changes us and there's love among us. All of the work of redemption can be summarized as the work of love. And what Paul is saying here is that that love is going to endure into the new heavens and new earth. It is not going to perish on the day of judgment. It will continue, endure into that new age, into the age to come. But, he says, but as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Let me just stop there. So Paul is drawing a distinction. Love is not going to fail. Love is going to endure. But tongues and prophecies and knowledge, which I don't have too much time to define all these. I hope that they've done that already. But the knowledge here is not so much like you just read some big heavy theology book. It's more about mystical spiritual knowledge. And in a sense, it's like this sense of, of, of mystical understanding of spiritual things. These guys were, in the early church in Corinth, they were not sitting around reading, you know, John Calvin or all the other people that I have to do for seminary, right? But, they, but they, would, they would get together and they would, they would share spiritual truths and they would seek spiritual knowledge. So these spiritual gifts, tongues, uh, the knowledge, and, um, and uh, prophecy, these, he says, will pass away. So now you see a distinction. Now, why is he, why is he, care, why is he even bringing this up? I'm sure Elijah and Brandon and others have mentioned this, but if you read the book of Corinthians, there's a huge issue in their church. Go figure, like any church, of division, of pride, of selfishness. You might think they're a lot like my church or your church. But as far as you can tell in Corinth, it's a pretty big problem. Because Paul writes a lot of other letters, and he really emphasizes it in this one. Which isn't to say that, you know, Ephesus had it all together. They didn't have it all together. Or Philippi or um, Thessalonica, they had their own issues. But it seems to be Corinth, because of the culture there, had a, had a distinct problem with pride in the church and with division. It opens up with Paul talking about how some of them are following Apollos, some are following Paul, some are following, you know, they're, they're kind of taking their sides, you know. You have your Longhorns, you have your Aggies, and so on and so forth, Right? But in their church, this is causing major division. Who, who got baptized by who? Who's following who? And you, you read the whole letter through. You get to the part on communion, the Lord's Supper. Uh, he talks about how they're, they're not taking the Lord's Supper. That's a serious thing. 
He says, you guys are not taking the Lord's Supper properly. And what he's talking about in the Lord's Supper part is you got the rich people basically eating a big old fat meal, coming in drunk and taking care of their stuff, and they got people sitting there who have no food. He's like, God's killing y'all because of this. That's, by the way, the, the Jonathan version of that passage. Uh, but that's what's going on there. It's serious stuff. People are dying in this church because of division and selfishness. So that's why Paul goes on, and he talks about love in 1 Corinthians 13. He was not just writing it because he thought it was a beautiful poetry. He was writing it because he knew they needed to hear it. And so when he talks about tongues and prophecies and spiritual knowledge, it's because these are the things in their church that were becoming the organizing, uh, the organizing DNA of that church. What I mean is when they got together, what was really centered in that church was people uh, you know, doing prophecies and, and, and having uh, visions and speaking in tongues. That was really what was the glue holding this church together. What, was, what, what they were doing in activity as a church were these things, focusing on these spiritual gifts. And Paul wants to correct that. He wants them to see that those things are temporary. He says they're going to pass away. Meaning, when we get to the new heavens and new earth, they're not going to be here. And then he gives two analogies that help explain what he says. He doesn't really tell us their analogies, but you go, okay, because now all of a sudden we're talking about children. Well, wait a minute, what are we talking about, Paul? He says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. He gives two analogies that, that help us understand what he's saying. What he is telling us is that we need to be living for the age that we're going to be in, not for this age. We need to be setting our hearts and our minds and defining our values as a church by what is going to be true about the future age, not this age. So children... He says, when they're children, they do children things. But when they get to be adulthood, they no longer do those things. So all of us you know, were a child at one point. We know there's things we did as kids that we no longer do. Some of us have children. We know the things that they knew, that they do, that we, either, we once did, and drove, now they drive us crazy. So he's, the idea of the manhood here is the analogy is that is the age to come. And he's saying that when we get into that age, there are going to be certain things that we did now that we're not going to keep doing. And here he's talking about tongues and prophecies and knowledge. And then the same thing with the mirror. So to draw it together, there's a sense in which those gifts are here to help us know God. They are spiritual gifts. Speaking in tongues and the knowledge and the prophecies are spiritual gifts. That means they are gifts of the Holy Spirit. They are given to his church to help us know God. Now, the problem with that is that in this age, we don't know God perfectly. And so these things help us know God. If anyone here knows God perfectly, let me know. I want to hang out with you. Right? None of us do. We have scripture, and the Holy Spirit illumines our hearts with scripture and then we have the spiritual gifts in the church. These things help us know God. But none of us now know him perfectly, completely. And I don't mean as if we can know everything there is to know about God. I mean, we don't know him as well as we will know him fully when we're in the new heavens and new earth. And that's what he says. He says, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. 
In the new heavens and new earth, you and I will know God perfectly. Think about that for a minute. You and I will know the God of the universe perfectly. Now, that word perfect there in Greek has a lot of different meanings. It doesn't just mean like, you know, you got 100% on your, on your score, and now you can check off your theology exam, and you know all the all things about God. That's a very crass meaning. It means fully, completely, totally. We will know God as much as we are capable of knowing him as human beings. We will know God fully and truly. And when we do, we will no longer need those gifts that were associated with the age where we didn't know God completely, where we didn't know God fully. In that age, the age you and I live in now, these gifts help us to know God. But they won't be necessary in the new heavens and new earth. To give you an okay analogy, we all have light bulbs in our house, right? Those light bulbs, they are light. But none of us would say that's the same thing as the sun. You would be a fool walking around like, well, like me as a kid. I don't see my kids, that's not fair. Like me as a kid. With my flashlight in the middle of noontime. You don't need the flashlight anymore, it's noon. The sun's everywhere. You won't need these gifts, Paul is saying, and the new heavens and new earth, because God is going to be right there. And you know what God is? God is love. Love will endure into the new heavens and new earth in so many profound ways that I'm just not even gifted to expound. God is love. So the new creation will literally be effused in every atom of the new heaven and new earth with the love of God. Not only that, but your existence there and my existence there will constantly proclaim in all creation, God is love. God is love. Christian, why are you here? Because God is love. Why are you here? Because God is love. Everything about the cosmos and the new heaven to new earth will declare loudly, proudly, boastfully, God is love. In this age, the work that produces what will endure into eternity is the work of love. So Paul wants to correct their values. What needs to be the organizing principle of your church is love. Because it is the work of love, the fruit of love that will bear into eternity. These other things are not bad. In fact, in chapter 14, he's going to go back and he's going to affirm these things are okay. But they cannot be the focal point of your church. The focal point of your church needs to be fixated on what is going to be true of the new heaven and new earth. And that needs to guide the way you live now. Now, I don't know about y'all. Some of y'all maybe, which is pretty cool. I'm a white boy from the suburbs. Not too many of my people speak in tongues that I know of. At least not around me. Um, I was going to pick on Aggies for a minute. I did go to Aggie football game, and there was some tongue speaking there. Um, I'm a Longhorn, sorry. But um, also, I doubt that all of y'all, as a normal practice in your church, stand up and have prophecies for one another. If you do, let me know. Now, there are some churches today, by the way, we as Westerners, I didn't have this in my notes, I've, I've been a missionary, we as Westerners have a lot to learn about the gifts of the Spirit from the global church. You go to South America or Africa or Asia, you're going to see some of these things happening. And we're going to go, wait a minute, that, that, that's not my notes? You're supposed to talk? They have a lot to teach us. However, in this particular church, this had become a fixation. It had become what they were focusing on as a church. And Paul wants them to see these things are good, but they, can't not, they cannot be the ultimate thing. 
Because they will produce divisions. They will produce boasting. They will produce superficial fruit as opposed to lasting fruit. So, I do want to caution us that Paul wrote this letter to them because they were overemphasizing these spiritual things. I think we as Westerners tend to have the opposite problem. I believe we tend to minimize the Spirit. We tend to want to program out everything and think that we can manufacture the Spirit's work through our own effort. So we need to be very careful. This, this letter, I don't think Paul would necessarily have to write this to us, is what I'm saying. But the Spirit inspired Paul to write this. It's why it's in Scripture. It's not just Paul's letter. It's, our, it's God's letter to us. Because there is always a temptation to let the now define the church rather than the hereafter. There's, it's always easy for Christians to let the culture now, the pressure now, our own temptations now shape our life as a church rather than the age to come. Because it is hard to live for the age to come. It's hard. And I was sharing with um, Elijah and um, uh, Brandon and I forgot his name. John, that's right. He's like my name. That's why I forgot. John. That if the church in America in the 1800s had lived for the age to come, what would have been different about America in the 1800s? Or the 1900s. Now, it's easy for us to look back at them and go, oh, yeah, see, they really messed up. But what I say is what, how easy it is to be misled by the moment that we live in, to let the moment that we live in define what we think is spiritual, define what we think is Christian, define what we think is Christian maturity. Because that's what they were doing. And Paul says, you need to be looking at the age to come. And when you do that, then you'll begin to understand what is, what is spiritually mature. Then you'll begin to live in a way that has abiding significance for eternity. So he tells them, these things will pass, but love will not. And then he closes in verse 12. He says at the end of it, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I don't want to skip over the last part, because that's an incredible statement. It actually is similar to one in John chapter 17, I think, when Jesus says, Jesus prays to the Father, he says, I pray that the love that you have for me will be in them. Jesus prays that the love that God the Father has for God the Son would be in us, which by the way it is, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the love of God in us. God the Father answered that prayer. But this is the same when he says, I shall, I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. That's huge. It means God knows me fully, knows me completely. There is no part of me which God does not see. No part of me which God himself in his spirit does not know. And when I get to the new heaven and new earth, that will be reversed. Well, I mean, we both and. I will know God as well as he knows me. That's a profound truth. It's a truth that will keep you sane on those really dark days. And then, verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Again, this could be another sermon 
But if you're reading along and you're studying it carefully and you're like me, immediately you get a question mark in your head. Where did faith and hope come in? Those are good things. But all of 1 Corinthians 13 has been love, love, love. Now, there was some talk about faith and hope at the very beginning. It talks about uh, love endures all things, love hope all things, love believes all things at the very beginning. So he has talked about faith and hope in connection to love. And that part, his point was that um, love is what, is what undergirds faith and hope. And we'll get to that in a minute. But here he comes and he says, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three. If we stop for a second and we take out the faith and hope, we can understand what he's saying. And then, we'll, and then we'll throw those back in. So now, love abides. We can, if you take that, it's clear that he's basically saying what he just said in verse 8. Love never ends. Love abides. You're saying the same thing. Because this abiding idea is the same thing as the never ending. It's going to continue on. It's going to endure. He said love never ends in verse 8. And now he says love, uh, love abides. And he adds in faith and hope. So why does he include faith and hope? Well, for a few reasons. One is that faith, hope, and love were probably kind of the motto of the early church. You know, Nike has its just do it. Uh, What is McDonald's? I don't eat there. I forget what it is. But we all have those little slogans, right, that we know. I I, I grew up watching too much TV. Even today, I can hear, like, the music of an ad from the 80s, and I still remember it. The early church, they were a new thing. They were a brand new entity. They weren't Jewish, so they couldn't be like, oh, well, we're Jewish. They weren't uh, some Greek philosophy. So what were they? It was likely that the faith, hope, and love were kind of what defined them. What are you about? What does it mean to be a Christian? They would use faith, hope, and love as kind of the organizing principles of what it meant to be a Christian in the early church, which, by the way, is a beautiful description. I think we'd have a lot fewer denominations if we could get back to that. Um, So faith, hope, and love abide. But, But now the second question is, okay, well, how does faith and hope fit in the new heavens and new earth? Love, I get. God is love. The new heavens and new earth will be filled with love. Well, how, how does faith work? Because don't we have faith because we can't see? So if I can see, like it says in Hebrews, then I don't really need faith anymore. Well, that's actually a, that's one aspect of faith. In this age, in the age that is imperfect, that is incomplete, where we don't know God fully, part of faith is trusting in what we don't see. Part of faith is trusting in what we don't fully know. But the essence of faith is much bigger than that. Adam and Eve had faith, meaning they trusted who God was. They trusted God. They believed God. They followed his word. They knew that he loved them. They had fellowship with God. All of that was, can be described as faith, trusting in God, believing in his good, believing in his promises, which, of course, they reject in Genesis 3. So faith at its core is what is, is essentially our relationship to God is, is the, the trust, the love, the knowledge of who God is and believing in him and trusting him. Hope, how does hope come in the new heavens and new earth? Well, obviously, it's not the same kind of hope in the sense that we hope now for what we don't see. We will see it. But all three of these, what binds them together in terms of the new heavens and new earth is this. They will be complete in the new heavens and new earth. 
Whereas tongues, whereas prophecies, whereas the spiritual knowledge, those things will pass away. These things will be made complete. These things will be fulfilled. Take reading, for example. I, I, I read as a little kid. I still read. I now read at the age of maturity, if you will. But there are things I did as a kid that I no longer do. That's his analogy here. Faith, hope, and love have as a goal that they will be matured. It will come to completion in the new heavens and new earth. So that we can say, like I said about love, that everything that is true about love is true about faith and hope. That the, the, new, the, the new creation will scream and shout out, who are we? We are the people of faith. Why are you here? Because God saved us and we believed in him and everything on the new new earth will cry out faith in God, trusting in him and his goodness and his love. Hope? Paul says in Romans 5 that we hope for the glory of God. That's our final hope. The glory of God. What are, what are we going to see in the new, the new earth? The glory of God. Our hope will be fulfilled. Our hope will be matured. Our hope will be complete. So not only are these three things kind of the motto of the early church, they also describe three things that will be completed and fulfilled and matured in the new heavens and new earth, contrary to these other things that will pass away. So in summary, what is this, where does this leave us? Well, a couple of things. You can't get love by chasing love. You cannot get Christian love by chasing love. You can, in this passage, one way, one of the ways that we get Christian love is by focusing on, thinking about, learning about the new heavens and new earth. The more we're shaped according to the world to come, the more we will become the people that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. Because if you, if you define your identity, not as I'm a doctor, or I'm a, I'm, I'm a mother, or I'm a father, or I'm white, or I'm black, or I'm Hispanic, or I'm an American, or I'm Latino, or whatever. If you, if you define your identity, first and foremost is, I'm a citizen of the new heavens and new earth. That will do more to humble you than anything in the whole universe. You will be humbled because you will know that the only reason why you are a citizen of the new heavens and new earth is because God himself has taken you there. And that will change the way you treat other people in a way that no self-help book ever will. If you know that that's your destination and that shapes the way you get up in the morning and see yourself and see your life, you will change the way you are. You will be changed by the spirit and that will change the way you talk to other people and think about other people. If you think about your fellow believers as also being in the new heavens and new earth, that's going to change the way you look at them and the way you treat them. Paul is not just talking about abstract. He's talking to a church with real people, people who some people liked and some people got crazy, annoyed with and vice versa. These are real people. So those people in your church, in my church, we are all going to be in the new heavens and new earth together. Amen? And so it changes the way we treat each other now. It radically changes the way we treat each other, and that becomes love. So I'm going to close with a few quotes from a man who I have learned a lot from this, my own life, if I can find it here. Um, these are from Diedrich Bonhoeffer in his book called Life Together. 
If you've not read the book, I would strongly encourage it. It is a book that, it's not all like, it's not meant to be like a theology book. It's very, very practical. And I'm not saying we have to go try to imitate, he was trying to do a Christian community in a very literal sense. I'm not saying we should go off and live in a commune. But he has very perceptive uh, thoughts about love and community. So I'm going to leave you with these, with some applications. First, uh, he says, churches are an anticipation of the age to come. So between the death of Christ and the last day, it is only by gracious anticipation of the last things that Christians are privileged, privileged, to live in invisible fellowship with other Christians. It is by the grace of God that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly in this world to share God's word and sacrament. We're here as a foretaste of heaven. This church is not this building. It's not me, my name, or your name. It's not, it's not a denomination. It is the, God, the people of God gathered here. And this is an anticipation, a foretaste of heaven. So as you abide together in love, you are both producing what will last to eternity and you are experiencing the first fruits of that, the foretaste of it. Secondly, he says, uh, this one is good for me. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. That's powerful. Because I'll tell you what, as a guy who went to college, it's easy to read books and easy to get on board with ideas. But he, what he's saying here is it's easy to love the idea of community. Who would say no to that? We all want that. But when it comes to loving the people around me, that's, that's what creates community. And then finally he says, it may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service, may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everyone must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners, Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is, we are sinners. I once visited a um, AA meeting. And, you know, they, they, you guys probably know, they start those meetings with, hi, I'm so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic. What he's saying here is, the temptation for Christians and why we can oftentimes fail so badly at community is because we don't want to treat each other as sinners. We want to come in as pious and devout and nice and sweet and good. And to do that, we have to then hide our sin. We cannot have real community, real love, this side of heaven, unless we treat each other as we are, as we know we ourselves to be, which is sinners. And unless we're willing to love each other in our sin, doesn't mean we encourage sin. It means we can be open about our sin with one another. That is when we'll, that's where we will find real community. Now, I'm not encouraging all of y'all to stand up and have a, you know, a come to Jesus moment. You can do that. But there are proper places in the church for that. 
Small groups are for our great way for that because you need the intimacy and the trust of a small group. But one of the things that breaks my heart is in my own small groups, how so often no one wants to go there. No one wants to open that door. And no one wants to be the first one that does it. It always takes one brave person to give that one prayer request. I'm struggling financially. Oh, wow. Or I, my, my kid is having sex with his girlfriend. Or, man, I really yelled at my wife the other day, and I'm a jerk. Or whatever it might be. If we cannot have those kinds of conversations with members of our church, we will never have real community. The challenge of real community, this side of heaven, is it has to be a community that's rooted in grace. Because if it's not, we will never have real community. And honestly, I think as Americans, because we have so much personal space and privacy, that those, that's one of the biggest obstacles. So when you read 1 Corinthians 13, all of us can go, amen, love never ends, amen. You know, uh, faith, hope, and love, the grace of these is love, amen. But the question for you and for me is, what are we going to do about it when we get up tomorrow morning? How are we going to live this out? Let me pray for us. Dear God, I thank you so much for your words. And fathers, I pray at the beginning, there is no way we can ever manufacture the kind of love that we've been given through Christ. That is a gift of the Spirit. And God, I pray for City of Refuge, that it would be a church that experiences a bountiful portion of this gift. That they would experience personally and corporately your love. And that they would be known among each other and in this community as a church where the gift of the Spirit The gifts of the spirit of faith, hope, and love are central and defining and shape the community and give it life. Thank you so much, God, for your word in this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.